All right, now we come to one of those texts in Revelation that has been hotly debated for about 2,000 years, and I will do my best to tell you what I think it means. Um, But as I do that, I want to start by telling a story from church history that uh, Club 412 kids or high school, middle school kids, you might be interested in hearing if you haven't heard it. Maybe you've heard it if you're an adult already, but I think it's it's one that's instructive for us. Uh, George Whitfield uh, was one of the greatest preachers in American history. He was a Presbyterian, a Calvinist, and another uh, great Christian leader at the same time was a, a man named John Wesley, who was an Arminian and a founder of Methodism. They both had massive followings. And Whitfield was asked uh, by one of his followers, who obviously didn't like Wesley or his followers, and he said to Whitfield, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? And Whitfield responded, yes, you're right, we won't see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. Uh, That's probably not the response that his follower wanted to hear, but I love the humility in Whitfield's tone. Um, Even though they disagreed till their death about key matters of theology, they learn to respect each other as a Calvinist and an Arminian. And as we approach this text today, I recognize in our church and in, in the church, the big church, there are a lot of different interpretations of this passage, of millennial views, uh, which we will get into today. I'll try to explain briefly uh, two of the views that I don't agree with, but I have respect for just so that you understand them. You may hold to that view. Uh, but as with, as with theology that I would not consider to be essential theology, essential theology is, is things that we find in the Apostles' Creed, matters of salvation, uh, matters that must be true for Christianity to be true, unless it's on that level. And even on that level, we should disagree charitably and lovingly with other people. But certainly in matters where we would consider it to be not a top-tier issue, we need to have a view. It's important. It's very important to have a view on this, Uh, but it's important that we hold that view with charity and with humility before our brothers and sisters. After all, we have to recognize that we follow Jesus Christ who was crucified on a cross. So whenever you have or are approaching true theology or good theology, it should be leading you in the direction of humility and not arrogance. That's really a litmus test for you. Is your theology true and good? Are you believing it rightly? Well, is it leading you toward humility that looks like Jesus who died on a cross? And so it's not at all to say that theology doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter. As we will see, as I'll explain to you, different millennial views have had a great impact on American and European history in particular. I'm gonna go through that for just a minute at the beginning to show you just how high stakes what you believe about the millennium, when Christ is going to reign on the earth and what that's gonna look like. Different views have led to all kinds of different movements throughout American and European history that have deeply impacted the world. So what you think about the millennium and what it means for Christ to rule and reign through his church, it matters a great deal. So theology really matters. At the same time, we need to hold that theology humbly before one another. We should never have second-class citizens in the church 
because they might disagree with a theological view that we have. It's, it's extremely important. Every church tends to do this with some kind of a doctrine, but we shouldn't have second-class Christians in a church because we disagree on a matter of doctrine, uh, particularly one that wouldn't be on a top-tier level. All right, and so with that, let me pray as we get going that God would give us ears to hear what he's saying to us from this passage. Lord, uh, we recognize that you wrote these words through the Apostle John uh, about 1,900 years ago, and you wrote this for an original audience, and then you also meant to communicate those words to us through your word, the Bible. So we pray that you will give us ears to hear your message today. Father, would you fill us with um, a, a, a awakeness so that we can really listen and think and embrace uh, what you're saying to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the first element I want to point out to you that's important for understanding this passage is that the reign of the Lamb, which is the title for this sermon, the reign of the Lamb is a current, not just a future reign. And that right there uh, differentiates my view and the, reformed, the more reformed view of this passage from the other two views. This is a current, not just a future reign of the Lamb. I believe this passage teaches us about what Christ is doing and how he is reigning over his church and with his church right now, not just in the future. There are three basic views of the millennium. The millennium meaning the thousand-year reign of Christ, the time when Christ will reign on the earth. And Christians have held to these different views throughout the centuries. Those views are called, these are big words. If you're unfamiliar with them, uh, they're going to sound like a lot, and they kind of are a lot to understand. But uh, it's good for us to think about this. Those views are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, before you tune out and you're like, you're just like, you know what, this, this can't matter because those words are way too big for me right now, I would encourage you just to listen for a little while longer. And let me tell you, as I told you earlier, how these different views have impacted different religious and political movements throughout history. These are really important ideas. Millennial views influence the way you envision both the present and the future. In America and Europe, this has led to many different movements. I took a class in RTS uh, taught by Michael Horton. It was a one-week class. We went to class from 8 to 5 every day with a lunch break. And Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it's 24 hours of class time, he went through different religious movements and how they viewed the end times and how that impacted our culture today, okay? So I'm going to spend about five minutes giving you a preview of this. I recognize I am not going to be exhaustive at all. You don't want me to be exhaustive in all the ways that this has impacted our society. But let me give you a slight preview of throughout church history how these different views of the millennium have impacted culture. There was a guy named Eusebius. He was a famous bishop in the fourth century. And he believed that when Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, when he became emperor... He believed that this union of church and state was the beginning of the millennium, and this union of church and state would last until the coming of Christ. That's what he believed, and that's what he taught. A lot of people believe that. Uh, a little later, a guy named Augustine, who's pretty famous, 
was the first one to lead out with the idea that this thousand-year reign of Christ is actually not something in the future, only in the future. It's actually something that we experience in the present, which is something like what we call amillennialism, and I'll tell you more about that. That's my view. Okay, so that's Augustine. And then a lot of other views happen in between Augustine and the pilgrims. The pilgrims, this is really important for us to understand about American history. The pilgrims believed that in coming to America, they were fulfilling a vision of creating the millennial reign of Christ in the new world. And they believed that this idea of manifest destiny, which sees the unique role of the U.S. in bringing peace and freedom to the world, was part of their religious faith. As a result, many Christians in America still combine their theological view of the millennium with America and the American destiny. Okay, and so some of these same Christians that tie their view of the millennium to America and our future rule and and how that's going to happen in the world, they also see a role in this. Many times, often the same people see a union between the American manifest destiny and the geopolitical Israel future in that they are pro-America and pro-Israel based on their view of the millennium, based on their view of what should be happening towards the end of time. And so the, we call this view of America influencing the world for Christ and this ultimate outgrowth of that something like Christian nationalism. And we call this belief that geopolitical Israel must be supported by Christians, meaning the Israeli state must be supported by Christians in order for Jesus to return and reign on the earth. We call this Zionism. Okay, and those two belief systems, those two outgrowths of millennial views deeply impact everything that you see happening today in the news. They deeply impact our political world today. Post-millennialism, those are, that, that view is a pre-millennial view. Um, post-millennialism, the belief that Christ will return after a thousand-year literal millennium, was the view of greats like Jonathan Edwards. So, Jonathan Edwards, I deeply respect this guy. I mean, he's unbelievable. He's also a Presbyterian. I disagree about his millennial view. So again, we do this humbly, right? I'm disagreeing with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards taught something called post-millennialism, that Christ would return after a thousand-year literal millennium. This post-millennialism drove much of the 18th and 19th century missionary movement, believing that Christ was waiting to return until a certain degree of righteousness was achieved in the world, a certain degree of peace and harmony that would be brought through Christianity into the world. This this belief system led to many positive things, the building of many hospitals, clinics, schools around the world, and all kinds of things like that, which is wonderful in the developing world. What is not wonderful about it is often Christians exported their Western values with Christianity in a way that the people that were receiving this help from Christians couldn't tell the difference between Christianity and Western values. And so you see kind of a cultural imperialism that went along with that. Now, the world wars of our last century were a great blow to uh, the post-millennial view that the world is over time becoming a better place. Uh, This post-millennial view is not a very common view 
today, not as common as it was then, because most, of, most Christians don't see the world as getting better right now. We see it as devolving or moving in the wrong direction on the whole. So you can see, just from this brief summary of millennial views, that what you believe about the millennium really impacts not just your own life, but as, as Christians group together in these movements around these ideas, it impacts society as a whole and the direction that we move in in politics and many other things. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I'm not going to get into much more on politics than that, but just, just so you know, this is pretty important. So the three millennial views, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, let me explain those to you now that your interest may be piqued. So millennium means a thousand years, specifically according to this passage, this is the thousand years when Christ will reign on the earth before the next two big events come, when he puts Satan to death and will judge the world. Okay, I'll talk about that next week. It's also in Revelation 20. So it follows that premillennialism means before the thousand years, that Christ will return before his thousand-year rule on the earth. Postmillennialism means after, that Christ will return after a thousand-year period. And then amillennialism, what does that mean? Well, you might think it means not a thousand years, and that's not exactly correct. Uh, amillennialism means not literally a thousand years. So the amillennial view would look at Revelation as a whole and see the figurative nature and the symbolic nature that numbers are used throughout Revelation and would put this thousand-year number also in that category rather than treating it as if it were an actual literal thousand years, okay? So this is my view, the amillennial view. I'm going to really explain this passage based on amillennialism. But before I do that, I want to... Um, help you understand uh, what I think is a good synopsis of both premillennialism and postmillennialism so that you understand those views. Okay, premillennialism, I was raised on this view. I didn't know there was another view until I was in college. Okay, so I grew up thinking this was the only way to understand the end times. This is the view that most Southern Baptists and Pentecostals hold. I grew up Pentecostal. Uh, this, is, this theological view is the basis of the famous Left Behind, Behind series, which my parents have all in hardback. They wouldn't even buy the paperback. They need the hardbacks, and they continue to display them in the living room, okay? So I was raised to believe, again, this is the only view, and I didn't understand until I was in seminary that premillennialism, this view of the end times, didn't exist at all until the 18th century, and wasn't really formalized until the 19th century, okay? So it's not the only view. In fact, Christians for about 1,800 years didn't know premillennialism was an option, okay? But now it is in vogue today, and it is probably the most popular view that you're going to be exposed to um, in Christianity, especially within America. So this view of the end times believes that Christ will return before the millennium. Millennium. This is important to understand that premillennialists take a mainly negative view of history before Christ returns. History is degenerating until Christ comes to set up his reign on earth. And because of this, most premillennialists, like I was raised, don't really believe there's value in cultural engagement. Uh, there's this belief that it's all going to burn, it's all going to burn. 
And so the only thing that matters really in engaging the world is saving souls from burning. And that's it. Essentially, you need to make money, you need to tithe and give to the church so that people who work for the church can go out and share the gospel so that more people can come to the church and not go to hell. And so it takes a very narrow view of the scope of the way that Christians should be involved in the world today because of this negative view. I'm I'm being general, okay? This is, is generally seen, engaging with the world to make a difference in the world is generally seen as a fruitless exercise according to this view of how things work in the end. I will say something about politics a little bit, actually. Okay, so the way this works also is that how we get involved politically if you unite that with America and Israel, is that you want to promote things politically that are going to lead to what you consider to be an outcome that Jesus would return and start his thousand-year reign, okay? And so you, you support these, these things. Uh, I took a class at Oxford in 2003 on this called Jesus Jerusalem in the Middle East, where uh, actually there's this this huge difference between supporting geopolitical Israel and supporting the new Israel, which I believe is the church, okay? So if you talk about Israel and Palestine relations, the fact is that there are many more Christians in the Palestinian regions of Palestine than there are Christians in the Jewish regions of geopolitical current Israel, okay? So when you support geopolitical Israel without thinking about the new Israel, which is the church, you often end up supporting policies that actually hurt your brothers and sisters who live in Palestine, okay? So this is what ends up happening as you take a view that's more premillennial where you you think that there's something about Jesus returning in the Jewish nation state that go together that can be very dangerous. Now, I'm not saying don't support the nation state of Israel. It depends on what they're doing. It depends on what's happening there. But you shouldn't unilaterally support any geopolitical system simply because you think somehow that's related to the Israel of old. That's a huge change that happened because of Jesus, that there's a new Israel. And we don't support just a geopolitical Israel. Uh, That's short-sighted, and we need to really consider that. We need to support our brothers and sisters wherever they are. Stats show that about 10 times the number of Christians actually live in Palestine versus what we consider to be Israel today. And so we need to understand who we're supporting and why we're supporting these things. All right, so I got into it a little bit. We can talk more about that later. Okay, so premillennialists also have a different view on something called the tribulation. The tribulation is this idea of a seven-year period that precedes the millennium where there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen. And they believe that the premillennialists often believe that people, Christians, will be raptured before the tribulation, okay? So amillennialists, which is my view, we don't believe in a rapture. We don't believe that you get raptured and taken away from the world before the bad things happen. The only way you avoid the bad things happening is by dying, Okay, then you get to go to heaven, and you experience what we call the first resurrection here in the passage, okay? So, things are hard. Christians are suffering all over the world. We don't get to miss the suffering. 
because we're following our Lord Jesus who suffered, okay? So that's a pretty big difference. Postmillennialism uh, believes that Christ will return after the thousand-year reign is complete. And they believe that there's going to be this golden age of gospel expansion where the world is going to be transformed by the gospel and all these political systems are going to, and, and all these social systems are going to manifest that. And then Jesus will return at some point when there's that level of righteousness happening in the world. As a, that's Jonathan Edwards' view. Um, and again, the world wars and the awareness through technology that we have of all the bad things happening in the world have kind of killed this view, okay, in my, my estimation. Okay, let's get into amillennialism. I'm going to spend the rest of the passage. That's probably the longest intro before I got to Scripture I've ever had in a sermon, so thank you for your patience. Um, but I think the context is important to acknowledge that there are different views, and I, I am, I'm humble about it. I could be wrong. I, I'm saying there's a chance. I don't think so, or I wouldn't be preaching it, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there that I respect that would disagree with me too. So, uh, so amillennialism, let's get into this, and let me explain this passage through the lens of an amillennial hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just a big word for interpretation, but you should learn it because people use it. Okay, so uh, verse 1. So this angel coming down out of heaven with a key, throwing Satan into a bottomless pit where he is bound for a thousand years. Okay, amillennialists believe this is a moment in time that will happen not in the future, but happened already in the past. Why? When did this moment happen? Why do we believe that? Well, when in history was Satan bound from keeping people in the dark about the love of God and his grace for sinners? I would argue that is a moment that happened at the cross and at the empty tomb of Jesus. At the, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is where the powers of Satan were defeated. Sin was defeated at the cross and death was defeated at the resurrection. These are the two great weapons of Satan and they were both defeated. So John 12, 31, Jesus says this. He says, now, and I believe he's talking about his death and resurrection and his current being on the earth. Jesus says, now will the prince of this world be driven out. And then in 1 John 3, 8, again, John also wrote Revelation. So these are words of John as well. John says that Jesus appeared in history to destroy the devil's work. So when Jesus is saying that I am here to destroy the work of the devil, in another place he says, I have come to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. I Meaning he has bound Satan. He is binding Satan in his first coming so that the gospel can go out into the world. Of course, I will not deny that even though Satan is bound, it does not mean that he is still not active in the world, but his power over believers in particular has been broken in the world. This means, what this means, and our confession spoke to this, that the believer in Jesus can live today with the real assurance that Satan no longer has power over him or her. That in fact, Christ has power over you. Now for me, growing up Pentecostal, this is something I wish I would have heard a long, long, long time before I heard it, okay? Because I believed that God and Satan were generally, basically co-equals. I mean, Jesus probably was a little more powerful. If I had to come right down to it, I probably would have said that. 
But at the end of the day, I felt like I was playing a video game. And the, the game was, you know, whether or not God, I was really going to be on God's side and he was going to give me strength, or I was going to be on Satan's side and he was really going to get me down. The difference was not found in Jesus, in his power, in his cross, in his resurrection, in his accomplished work. No, no, the power, the, the difference maker was me. It was my faith. In my faith, if I had faith in God or I didn't have faith in God, then it was, I could just like watch like on a video game, my health either growing or decreasing. And it was all based on how did I pray? How much did I pray? Did I say the right words when I prayed? Did I read my Bible today? Have I read my Bible enough recently? All of these things, it was like this giant spiritual algorithm somehow that meant that I was either growing as a Christian and I, was, and I had God's favor or God was kind of drawing away and, and Satan was really going to get the upper hand. And I'm telling you that this type of a view of spiritual living is debilitating. We need to know that Christ has defeated Satan, that, that Jesus, if you are in Christ and you have put your faith in him, then you, you have Christ, you are in Christ, you are united with Christ, and anyone who's united with Christ cannot be someone who is just open prey for Satan's work. So I believe this thousand-year reign of Christ began at the cross and the resurrection. I believe that the ascension is the moment where Christ, where, where his reign was, was, was formally recognized in heaven, and I believe he's now seated on his throne. He is now reigning as a slain lamb over the world. He has power over the world, and he has power over his church. And then verse 3, after Christ's return and the millennium ends, Satan will be released for a little while until I get to next week, where, where ultimately Christ will defeat Satan once and for all, and all of his demons and everyone forever in the lake of fire. Okay, so a potential problem phrase with this interpretation that could be a little confusing uh, is in verse one, bound so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer. So in what sense is Satan not deceiving the nations any longer? Because I certainly would not say that he is unequivocally in no way still not deceiving the nations. I believe he is in some way or another. So how would I interpret that? Well, I would ask, when did Satan basically have free reign to deceive the, the nations of the world? When did that moment in history occur? So you have, to read, you have to read the scriptures through the lens of the original audience. The original audience received this in about AD 90. So what would they be thinking about that? Well, what about the time before Jesus came? What about that 400-year period of time where there was no gospel, there was no cross, no resurrection, there wasn't even a prophet, it was just darkness. This was a time, I believe, where Satan had free reign to deceive the nations of the world. I mean, God, I believe, and his grace was probably doing something, but it's a period in history where it's just darkness reigning over the world. But no longer, now Jesus is reigning. He's the reigning king. And though not everyone in the world obviously recognizes that, the reality is he has already died and been raised and has ascended. So the best way to understand the millennium and the accompanying reign of Christ 
is not to see it only as something that happens in the future, which it does, but to see it as happening in the present as well. We are living now in Revelation 21 through 6. And the second point this morning is the reign of the Lamb means that saints in heaven reign with Christ as they wait. We're going to get into these final verses 4 through 6. So a simple reading, especially based on all that you bring into reading the scriptures about what's taught about the end times, would make you want to read verses 4 through 6 also through a future lens. But I don't think that's the best way to interpret it, okay? So watch this carefully with me, verse 4, where John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. A key question for us is, when and where are these thrones? Okay, it's easy to, to go future with it, but I don't think that's the best way, okay? When and where are these thrones? Well, this verse closely mirrors both Daniel 7, 7 through 10, which you can read on your own time, and Revelation 4, 1 through 4, okay? So let me read that for you. I, uh, actually, Mark preached on this passage months ago. I did a great job, but you might not remember this section. So here, John, same author, writes in the same book, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what, what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who had sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So this is John's vision of heaven in the year AD 90. And when we read this passage, we don't think, it's very uncommon interpretation, to think that John is not talking about something that he is presently seeing happening in heaven. He's seeing this happen in the present. And so when we look at, verse, at, at chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, it's important for us to also read this. It's a very similar theme. Where are these thrones? What is the setting that we're talking about? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? It's in heaven. It's not on earth. And when is it happening? Is it happening now or is it happening only in the future? I believe it's important for us to see that it's happening now in heaven. And that's important because that sets the context of how we read the rest of this passage. Is this talking about a future moment on earth? Or is this talking about a present reality in heaven? I believe this is talking about a present reality that those who have died in Christ are experiencing right now in heaven. Okay, so I'm going to teach it from that perspective. So, we learn that the dead in Christ are reigning with Jesus. Both the martyrs, those who have been beheaded for the gospel, and the faithful, those who did not identify themselves with the mark of the beast, which simply means that your identity is in Christ by faith. And you did not align with all of the other powers of the world. And, and when you did, you repented because your identity is in Christ. This is important for us to see that the dead in Christ are with Jesus. If you think about this from John's perspective, 
Here he is. He's the last living apostle. He's on an island. All of his other friends and apostles have been martyred. And in the early church, many people are being martyred. And those who are not being martyred are trying to live faithfully, and eventually they die of natural causes. So what happens to them? Well, what is being taught here is they are reigning with Christ. Why this is important for you and me is that one day you are called to be faithful. Not many of us will die as martyrs. Maybe some of us will. But we're seeking to be faithful. Maybe one day you'll die of natural causes. What will happen to you? What happened to your loved one who died in Christ? Well, they have been raised up and they are reigning with Jesus in what John calls the first resurrection. Okay, ironically, the way you get to experience the first resurrection is by dying. Because you don't actually in heaven receive a new body yet, but your soul goes to be with the Lord. And when you're at a funeral and you're thinking about this, what happens to this Christian what happens to their soul? We believe that their soul goes to be with the Lord, that they are immediately translated into the presence of Christ. And then later, when Christ returns again, we receive new bodies. Um, and that's, that's not in this passage, but it's in a, f- a future event from this passage. And then the, the second thing I see here is that the, we see the freedom of death that we experience in heaven. Okay, I just kind of mentioned that, but The way that you get to experience this first resurrection is by dying. And so rather than fearing death, the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to be afraid of death, but we are immediately with the Lord and we are raised up, not physically, but spiritually into God's presence. And then the final thing we see here is that spiritual death then has no power over those who die in Christ. The first death in Revelation is physical death. That's the first death that you experience. The second death is spiritual death, which I'm going to talk about a lot next week. But those who are raised up to be with the Lord in the first resurrection, those who go to be with the Lord, then the second death, which is ultimate spiritual death, has no power over them. Once you are in God's presence and your soul is in God's presence, you you have no reason to think that you would ever experience spiritual death or the second death. And you can have that assurance on earth as well. But again, the setting is uh, talking about people who are already in heaven. And you have to think about this. Think about this for someone who's who's reading this as one of John's, John's readers in the early church. This is like the best news ever, okay? Because your friends, many of them have died. And you're wondering, where are they? And you yourself, one day you're gonna die. Where are you gonna go? You're gonna experience the first resurrection. You're gonna be immediately brought into the presence of Jesus Christ if you know him by faith. Then the final point this morning is this, that the reign of the Lamb means that saints on earth are called to embrace the cross as we wait. Saints on earth are called to embrace the cross as we wait. So I don't believe that saints on earth are really directly talked about in this passage, I believe the setting is really heaven. Okay, but we have to ask the question then, what about us? What do we do with this information for those of us who are still waiting for heaven? How should we then live? Well, the first way that we should live is we need to understand that we're under the reign of God now. And so what are the characteristics of that reign? 
What type of reign, if we're reigning with Christ now, if he's seated on the throne, he's reigning in heaven, and we are reigning with him now on the earth. This is it. We're reigning with him now. That may be a paradigm shift for you, but that's what's happening. We, through the church, you get the, the believers in heaven that are really reigning with God in heaven. They see him and they experience that, but for us on earth, we are reigning with him as well. What does it look like on earth? Well, the first aspect is that it's a cruciform reign. As we live in the millennium now, how did the millennium, which is not a literal thousand years, it's been almost 2,000, right? How did this reign begin? How did the millennium start? Well, it started with Jesus, with his incarnation, and it really started with his crucifixion. And so Jesus' death on a cross should characterize the way that we live as Christians throughout this season of reigning with God. We live in light of the cross of Jesus. Jesus now is pictured for us in Revelation 4, if you keep on reading in that passage, which I read earlier, as being a lamb who has been slain. And so even now he reigns as a slain lamb. You can see the marks of the crucifixion on his resurrected body. And so we live under the reign of the slain king. He rules through humility, sacrifice, life-giving love. We should be, of all people, humble. So you think about the thousand, the number thousand, then why? This is interesting maybe for Club 412. Why a thousand? Why that number a thousand? Well, I mean, if you're going to ask a kid, what does the number a thousand mean? They would just say it's a really, really big number. And that's really probably the best interpretation for us too. It's a really big number. It's a big number. And it's also uh, kind of signifies a, a complete number, okay? A big complete number. We don't know exactly what the number is. It's not a literal thousand. Almost none of the numbers in Revelation should be interpret, interpreted that way. It's just a long time. The idea here is the suffering and the continuing to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it just keeps on going for longer than you thought it was going to. The suffering just keeps on happening, and it just keeps on, keeps on being uh, something that's difficult for us in a long season of suffering for the church. So the first aspect of his reign is it's a cruciform reign. The second idea of his reign is a hidden reign. It's a hidden reign. So Christ's reign in heaven is plain as day. Everybody can see it there, but on earth, of course, not many people see it, or some, quite a number don't, right? So what should we anticipate? We should anticipate being misunderstood. Uh, we should anticipate people misunderstanding Jesus. It's not obvious to them that he's reigning. If it's a hidden reign, we should also never be triumphalistic about our faith. We should never uh, be imperialistic in the way that we kind of force it on other people. No, we should be patient with others as it's easy not to see that Christ is reigning even now. It's also a reign that resists. This is a theme throughout Revelation that those who are following Jesus will resist the ways of the world, the temptations of the world, the sins of the world. There's a different counterculture in the church. We live in a different way. We're following this king, Jesus, who also resisted 
He resisted Rome. He resisted the ways of that, that day of Judaism. He resisted sin. We follow Jesus. Now, we're not perfect like Jesus. But when we fall into sin, we quickly turn to Christ, those of us who know him. And then the fourth thing I see here is it's a reign worth dying for. If you're in Iran or you're in China or you're in Nigeria, this might literally mean that you're going to die for Christ. It doesn't often mean that in America, hardly ever. Um, but it's worth dying for this king. There, there's a, he's a real king. And we're really called to follow him, whether that be by martyrdom or by taking up our cross and following him. And the final thing I'll say about this reign as I close is it's a reign of gospel word. It's a reign of gospel word. Going back to verse one, I'll ask you this question. If right now Satan is bound, if right now Christ has initiated his rule and reign through his death and resurrection and ascension, if one day he'll return again, but right now he is reigning in heaven, he's reigning over us through the church, if he's already bound Satan, then what is this era like for us in the church. How would we characterize this era of history? Okay? Now, when you hear people talk about this era of history, you could say, I hear it all the time, that's an era of deconstructing. It's an era of deconstructing. Uh, you could also say, these are not all incorrect, <laughs> but I would say they're incomplete. It's an era of nationalism. It's an era of nativism. It's an era of war, of refugees, and millions of displaced people. To maybe slightly be more positive about it, it's an era of the global church. Okay? I would say that when God looks down at history today, though he sees these realities, he doesn't characterize this season in history as any of those things. This is an era where he tells us what he thinks about it. It's Matthew 28:18 where he says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of the nations Jesus is not thinking in terms of what are we defining this era as he's saying now all authority post resurrection has been given to me therefore go and make disciples what does that tell us as we go forward into this world whether that's by gospel word or by deed I believe that our view of the end, our view of this, the way that we're reigning with Christ now, it's not just evangelism. It certainly includes that. It's also that the way we live and the way we engage with society today does really matter. It matters because we're serving the glorified king. It matters that we, we live in such a way that befit his, his beauty and his humility in the world. It matters. What does that mean, though, for us today? If all authority has been given to Jesus and he calls us out and Satan has been bound, that means that we can go with confidence, believing that God is at work, that this is not just a futile exercise, that it's not just all going to burn, that, thing, that people matter and, and systems matter and societies matter and the way that we live matters in the world because we're following King Jesus. You know, I talked about the evangelism workshop that's starting up. I do believe this is important for us, ultimately. This is the era in history where people can come to know Christ. There will be a time when this era will end, and that will be 
beautiful for those who know Christ and, and very sad for those who don't. So let's remember that as we continue to go through Revelation together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, there's, there's so much here. Um, and I pray that we would live with humility and charity, but we would also live with conviction, that we would live as those who understand that all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth, and so that we can go out and follow you, trusting God that you are at work in this world to bring redemption to people and to bring your reign of righteousness on the earth. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name.